And on Sundays now, we're halfway through a sermon series where we've been talking about the church family as the family of God, rather than just an institution or organization or club family. And we didn't make this up. If you dig into your Bible, you see it presented that way. Family, family, family. And so we've been digging into God's word to find out, well, what would the family of God look like? But more importantly than what it looks like for a big family photo, how should we relate to each other? Especially regarding how do we keep on loving each other? To begin to love is not that hard. To keep on loving each other is what we really need help with, right? So that, because something's at stake here, we've seen it more than once, something is at stake here regarding how we relate to each other. It's so that we would be loving each other in a way that the world would say, what is that? I've known of church all my life. In fact, I might have grown up in church. I might have heard horror stories about church or I've experienced a horrible story myself. But that, what is that? What do you have that I don't have? And maybe, here's what we're wanting, maybe, just maybe, I should take another look at this whole Christianity thing and Jesus thing. That's what's at stake. And so whether you're with, you were with us for the marriage conference or you just showed up today, I think you're going to be glad that you came. Because I'm going to talk to you about something that's missing in so many of our marriages, as well as other relationships in this world. Missing. Whether it's right here in this church, or whether it's a group of singles living together, or whether it's parents and their teenagers through that difficult season, or parents and their adult children that you don't know is also hard until you get there. You just think, oh man, if we can get it through the teen years. Well, there's something else ahead of that. Love is needed all along the way and never, you never reach this point where I'm good. What is it that so often is missing? Well, let me illustrate it for you this way. I am a coffee guy, but I don't want just any old coffee. No, no, no. I want good coffee that's been ground in the right way with the right machine from fresh beans that were harvested somewhere wonderful like Nicaragua. That were dried in the right way, roasted in the right way, packaged in the right way. You get the idea, right? In other words, I want to actually taste the coffee. Because it's good. Which means that I don't want to dump loads of artificially flavored creamers into it with names like French vanilla, hazelnut, pumpkin spice. Oh, please, no. But I have a confession to make. And this is going to put off some of you that are even ahead of me. Confession. Even though I want to taste the coffee itself, I wouldn't think of drinking it without adding just a little sweetener. Natural sweetener. Stevia or monk fruit. That allows the bean itself to come to the surface. Why? I want something, just something, to take the edge off of it. Why? 
Because sweetener works its little magic to take the edge off of what can be a little harsh or bitter all on its own. I see some nodding heads. Thank you. We'll talk afterwards. But now stay with me. Stay with me here. Relationships with people are some of the richest things. I hope you've experienced that. Some of the richest things that God has given us in a fallen, broken world. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. God is delightful, so people are delightful. But guess what? Because we're still sinners, even after God saves us, means that marriage, even between two believers, all by itself, can still turn bitter on you. Did you know that? Some of you do. All by itself can still turn bitter on you. And friendship and church relationships can start to feel harsh at points. But God gives us a sweetener that makes all the difference. And some of you aren't using nearly enough of it. And you're wondering why your marriage tastes the way it does. I married another believer. We have the same doctrinal statement. We agree on so many things. We thought we had so much in common. Oh, hear me. There's a sweetener that you're not using and nearly enough of. And you're wondering why your marriage tastes this way. And you're wondering why you struggle to even be in the same room with your roommate that you chose to live with. You're like, we were friends. That's why we said, let's share an apartment together. And now I don't even want to be in the same room with them. What's missing? What is it that hasn't kicked in like it should? Say it. Mercy. 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 I would say it to you this way. Mercy is the sweetener that changes the flavor of all of our relationships and keeps them alive. We're guilty of thinking, no, find the right friend. I just haven't gotten the right friend. Oh, I didn't find the soulmate. So let's start over. Don't start over. Add something that maybe has been missing. Let's say it again. Mercy is the sweetener that changes the flavor. It doesn't change the person necessarily. That's what's so frustrating. What can I do to get them to change so that this would be? They don't need to change necessarily at all. By God's grace, they might. But oh, mercy is the sweetener that changes the flavor of all of our relationships. And oh, by the way, keeps them alive. In other words, until we're fully sanctified, mercy is what keeps our earthly relationships alive. That's my first point I want you to get a hold of. Until we're fully sanctified, mercy is what keeps all of our earthly relationships alive. So let's stop and get a biblical definition of mercy since we're going to use that word a lot through this message. Paul Tripp says this, mercy is the kind, sympathetic forgiving treatment of others that works to relieve their distress and cancel their debt. He's not talking about a financial debt. 
if you've parented for any length of time, if you've been in a church for any length of time, if you've worked with the same coworkers for any length of time, there's a debt that you start to feel that is far greater than financial. It's how they are impacting me. And it hurts. And cancel their debt. You hear what he's saying? To relieve their distress and cancel their debt. So mercy only becomes mercy when it gets dispensed on others around us. And poured out on them. See, sweetener does absolutely no good. If it stays locked away in my cabinet and never makes it into my coffee cup. I've got to get it out. And pour it on. For it to make any difference. So turn with me to Luke chapter 6. And I want to show you how this sweetener that we're talking about changes even the worst of relationships. So we're going to start out there with worst case scenario and then work our ways backwards into our marriages, friendships, church family, co-worker relationships. Luke chapter 6. Turn with me in the Bible and I do hope you have a Bible. Never mind what I say. If you, if you remember anything, remember God's word. The word of the Lord. Luke 6, beginning of verse 27. Jesus speaking. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give. To everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing. In return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your heavenly father is merciful to you. Now you see what Jesus has done in this passage? He takes this sweetener, mercy, and he sets it in the context of your worst possible relationship, your enemy, and says, do this there 
So we can work our, ourselves backwards and say, if he expects us to do it there. So don't check out and say, oh, but my wife is not my enemy. Oh, but this coworker is not my enemy. Oh, this church member, I know they're not my enemy. Listen, folks, he started here. If he expects us to do it there, we can conclude he expects us to do it here in our home with our spouse, with our teenagers, with our young adult children, with our church family. I noticed something else I don't want you to miss because it's it's something you'll see Jesus do Often that he's emphasizing right here yet again that the church and Christians so often miss. And it's this right here. He's emphasizing that love, mercy, forgiveness, that's what's supposed to be the calling card of all those who have been adopted in the family of God and call themselves children of God. This is what's supposed to characterize us. This is what we're supposed to be known for. We're known for a lot of things. Some good, a lot bad out there in the world. But whenever Jesus decides to thump, oh, this is what I want you to be known for. Oh, he, he so often goes right back to this. You say, what are you talking about, Brad? Look at the second half of verse 35. So he's telling us what to do, and it's radical. And then he says, and your reward will be great. But look what he says next. And you will be sons of the highest. When do you look and act most like your heavenly father? When you are pouring on dispensing, giving mercy to another person. That's when you look and act most like your heavenly father. That's when it's like, oh, that must be a son of the highest. Not when we're, there's so many other things that we think, as a Christian, I'm supposed to do this, and I should do this, and I should do this, and there's plenty of shoulds in the Bible. But oh, whenever you want to just boil it down and say, I'm I'm getting confused, What should I focus on this year in an area of growth? If you ever want to just come back to the main thing. How merciful are you? And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the highest. Because then he connects it. Why? Because your heavenly father is kind To the, because we tend to say, but they don't deserve it. Perfect. That's when it, that's when it starts to count. He's kind to the unthankful. Don't you hate it when you feel like I'm not getting anything back from this person? The unthankful and evil. And then therefore always, always means in light of what I've just unpacked. Here we go. Therefore be, say it. Merciful. Why? Because that person deserves it and said that. Just as your heavenly father is merciful to you. And here's what else I want you to notice. If you're not careful, you can think, okay, mercy, that's a certain kind of feeling. This passage is loaded with 
action verbs, is it not? Mercy goes on the move, my friends. Mercy is always more than a feeling. And so I'd say it to you this way. Mercy is compassion in action. To say, oh yeah, I feel merciful towards them. Would they know it? They ought to know it. How would they know it? By how you're acting and what you're doing. It's filled with action verbs. Love. Do good. Bless. Pray. Give. Whoo. Wow. Mercy moves you towards the other person to do them good. Is that hard? Is that radical? Would that take some kind of supernatural help from within you beyond your own resources? Yes. But would that perhaps get the world's attention so that they'd stop seeing us as just one more club or institution taking up space, which is why they start to question whether we should even be tax exempt? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Why? All throughout the New Testament, you'll see this phrase, just as, even as. Look for them. Look for just as, even as, because most often it's giving you the basis and answering your question, why? When you push back and say, but why? Why? We tend to look on a horizontal level at that other person or situation and say, I don't see a basis for responding that way. You won't find it there. You look this way. It's our vertical that enables us and gives us the why as to why we should live so radically this way. Just as your heavenly Father has mercy on you. It's unrelated to that other person. Just as, even as. And yet, because this is so hard, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Don't hear me saying, this is easy, so let's all do it this year. Huh. If it was easy, the world could pull it off. That's why when we begin to live this way, it gets attention and sets us apart as sons of the highest. Because it's not easy. In fact, it's impossible without something else going on in your life. Because of God's mercy, because of what God has already done for us is why we are called upon to live this way. I think God didn't just think about mercy. It wasn't just a feeling. God put flesh and bones on mercy. Action. Move towards us. I mean, literally towards us. That's what Christmas is all about. And came down to us. If you ever think, I just... It doesn't compare to what God did for us. While we were yet. It's not like while we're. He saw we were kind of moving his way. Making progress. No. God put flesh and bones on mercy. And sent his son to the cross. For enemies. Sinners. In my own personal Bible reading. I'm so glad that it still moves me. I hope it never ceases to move, move me. I'm in the, the end of one of the Gospels of Mark. And I sat and read again slowly. I didn't want to hurry. How Jesus, they spit in his face. I don't know what you, 
I don't know what comes to your mind in a message like this. Do you think someone's done to you that offends you? I have not had anyone do that. Can you imagine you are God? You are the one actually keeping their heart beating and breath in their lungs. And that creature spits in your face. And then they begin to strike him in the face with their hands. That is also one of the most offensive things that could happen if it's ever happened to you. You feel so violated, right? And begin to mock him and blindfolded him and said, prophesy, who just hit you? And then took a, a, a reed and began to beat him on the head. Driving the crown of thorns that was already there to mock him as king. And it says he answered not a word. Oh, isn't that hard for us? Oh. And yet I don't believe I need to even know what's happened to you to say. It's not on the same level of what he endured for you. Mercy was put on flesh and bones. And he went to the cross. Not just so that we could experience mercy. Yes. But so that we could bend it out and extend it out to others around us. In a world that I hope you've noticed is so mercy deficient. Our world is law. Not mercy. It's not a merciful place we live in. And so God's called us as his sons and daughters of the highest to make up the difference. You say, what is God doing in our world? Us. Us. I know, it's a scary thought. Like, oh, surely he could have had a better plan. He didn't. Which doesn't mean he's not so smart. This is what God thought. This was his plan that believers, while we remain here, he didn't mean for us to just bite the bullet and endure until he takes us home. We're supposed to be dispensers of mercy in a world that is so mercy deficient so that we can get the glory. No, that's why first Peter says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Why are you living like this? Why do you respond like this? And you can point to him and you get a chance to talk about your savior and the gospel and the difference this makes. But so often, and I know I'm as guilty as anyone, so often that connection of what has been done for me doesn't make it on out this way on a horizontal level. To a, we receive mercy and we dispense law. Elise Fitzpatrick, some of you would know that name. Biblical author, counselor. She gives her own testimony about how, what uh, an amazing work that God had done in her. And some of you perhaps can relate to this. You can be in the church or around church and still be, just be caught in this system of kind of works oriented. It's what I do and I'm trying to earn God's favor. And it's quite honestly, it's exhausting. 
You're never sure if you're accepted or loved. You don't have peace. And so she hit this season where God did an incredible work in her life to bring her to a new point of recognizing, oh my goodness, it's all about God and what he's done. And I can rest in him and he loves me. He really loves me. She wrote a book about that because it just rocked her world. He loves me. I am accepted and loved and forgiven. I don't have to prove anything or earn anything. And so she could not keep this good news to herself. She just wanted to tell everybody and anybody. So she began to share this good news with a group of ladies that she was meeting with in a Bible study. And she says this, she told the group, the pressure is off me. When you're in this works-oriented, you just feel all this pressure. The pressure is off me, she said, she told the group. She, She went on to say, now don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm not pursuing holiness. It's just that I know my heavenly father will get me to where he wants me to be. And that even my failures serve in some way to glorify him. My relationship with God is growing to be all about His grace, his mercy, his power. But when she shared that, she was caught off guard. Because she talked about a grace-filled, peaceful existence with my merciful heavenly father. She said, I now have a grace-filled, peaceful existence with my merciful heavenly father. She's beaming in front of these ladies, but she's caught off guard because one lady sitting there didn't mean to put her on the spot, but just exuded and made a connection that we should make, but we sadly so often don't make. One woman in the group blurted out, oh, Elise, that must be such a blessing for your husband, Phil. Wow. I think you know where this is going. Wow. To be experiencing that kind of grace must enable you to be so patient and grace-filled with him. To know that God is working in Phil, just like he's working in you, must make your marriage so sweet and your husband so pleased. It's got to be great for Phil to know that the pressure is off for him too. Awkward, right? She says, there was an awkward silence because I realized in that moment that I rarely ever made the connection between God's mercy and grace to me and my mercy and grace to my husband, Phil. She says, I scarcely ever extended to Phil the grace that I was now enjoying with the Lord. Instead, I was frequently more like the man in Jesus's parable. She's referring to Matthew 18. We're going to go there before the sermon's over. Who after he was forgiven a great debt. Went out and beat his fellow slave. It's not just Elise is it? It should shock us. How often what we're describing that we have in God. We don't extend to others. Let me ask you. How strong is the connection between God's mercy to you? And your mercy towards those around you. Starting with those closest to you. 
in your home, your spouse, your children, your teenager, your adult children, your coworkers, your church family. Is mercy being passed on to others around you? If not, why not? And if you're saying, Brad, okay, what would it look like to pass on mercy to others? I'm going to give you two examples. Oh, there's far more. But because of time, I just want to give you two examples. What would it look like to pass on, to get it out of the cabinet of my heart and pour it on to others and stop just singing about it and reveling in it and turning it horizontal and bending it out to others? What would it look like? Here, number one. Passing on mercy to others means that you're willing to forbear and suffer because of someone else's sin. Now, let me give a disclaimer. That, please don't hear me saying you're being beaten in the home and you just stay there and you keep physically, literally being beaten. No, no. We're, we're, the Bible teaches and we would teach you, call the police and get out. So it's not what we're talking about. But there are sins that are far short of physical beating and it hurts. And there are places where God's called us because of his mercy to us to endure, to endure. In other words, here's what I'm talking about. You're saying mercy is my commitment. This is what it looks like towards others. Mercy is my commitment to love you in this broken, fallen world, even though I might have to suffer with you. So my commitment to you means I might suffer with you. That can be scary, but most of us will step up to that. I might have to suffer for you. There's an occasion where you might say, I'll I'll get in the way and I'll take it so that you don't. I'm about to tell you the hardest. And I might have to suffer because of you. It's you that's causing me to suffer. I'll suffer with you. I'll suffer for you. And my commitment to mercy means I'm willing to suffer because of you. All of these are potential mercy moments. All of these are potential mercy moments. It means you don't walk away and quit just because that other person's weakness. Sometimes it's just weakness. Immaturity. And yes, sin is now affecting me. That's what makes it so hard for us, right? Your sin is affecting me. I got my own sin. I don't need your sin affecting me. That's not right. Could we not be honest? Let's just be honest. Mercy sounds like this beautiful thing until it starts costing us more than we thought we were going to have to pay. News alert. Mercy will always cost you more than you initially anticipated or had calculated. We're not idiots. We're created in the image of God. We're thinking beings. We do sort of look ahead and we try to calculate and anticipate involvement with this person or commitment to this person, what it might cost me. Because of sin, there are always surprises. Mercy almost always entails a cost that exceeds what you had initially calculated or anticipated. Really, it's true of any. It's true of any earthly relationship between two sinners 
which is the only kind you're going to have right now till Christ returns. A relationship between two sinners. The cost of mercy almost always exceeds what you had initially calculated or anticipated. So we're tempted to walk away. Let me give you a second example of what it means to pour on mercy. Passing on mercy to others, secondly, means you're not in a hurry. And you're willing to wait. Mercy is never in a hurry. In other words, it means you've stopped looking. Here's what we're guilty of. I do love you. I want to stay in this. I want to stay committed. But I'm looking and sometimes even praying for that fully sanctified switch on you. That I could just throw. So that you grow up. Get over the things that are really... So I can throw this switch on my spouse or my roommate or that young adult child. Mercy means you're living, you're willing to live with a process mentality. Trusting that God is working in others just like he's working in you. I'm willing to live with a process mentality that God is working. Do I see? Sometimes I don't. But I'm going to trust him. He's working in greater ways than what I can see How are you going to do that? What would keep you in place waiting when you don't see much? Oh, now we're going to go back to love. Agape love keeps you in place. Long after your feelings are hurt and you want to walk away. Think of our definition of agape love, which is the greatest kind of love the Bible talks about. Because it's that kind of love that keeps you in place after your feelings have been hurt. Yea, verily, after your feelings have been snuffed out. And you say, I don't have any feelings for you anymore. Does that mean that it's done? Well, not if this entire thing is built on something more than feelings. It doesn't have to be done. Remember the definition of agape love? Oh, it is a strong feeling, but it's more than a feeling. It's made of stronger stuff than that, right? Agape love is a strong, so it's strong, non-sexual affection for someone else that's characterized by a willingness to lay aside my own, say it, rights. I think I have a right to be treated better than this. I thought, whatever, my own rights and privileges To give, expecting how much in return? Whenever you start expecting something in return, you have stopped loving in an agape kind of way. Again, please, I don't want to throw out the whole sermon, just every other sentence say, and I know this is hard, so just put that in there. But I'm telling you this because the Bible tells us this. Oh, oh. This kind of love. I ran across a description that gripped me. This kind of agape love is so beautiful. It's it's not easy, it's hard. But when you see it, you're like, oh. I saw a description of this in one of the characters of a fictional novel. Described, a character was being described in one of Louis de Beignet's novels, Coriolis Mandolin. So this is a, 
a male character talking, I think, to his son and describing the love between him and his wife. Listen to what he says. He says this. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. Now, our world usually only talks about being in love. When being in love is burned away, and this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. That is beautiful and that is biblical. Folks, our world only knows about the pretty blossoms, right? I've got the fragrance and the, and the delight of pretty blossoms on the branches. That's why I choose you. I befriend you. I choose this church. I... And that's why they're done in 18 months sometimes with a marriage. They're, they're all getting out so fast today. It's shocking. But it doesn't shock me as to why. We have a culture that is all about the pretty blossoms. And as soon as you hit a season where all the pretty blossoms have fallen from the branches of that relationship, there is nothing else. But oh, what if there was a root system that had been growing towards each other that had nothing to do with pretty blossoms, but was based on commitment, agape. Those of you that are young, listen to me. You know, this weekend we celebrated marriage conference. We had couples that that celebrated with us at the dance last night who've been married 55 years, 52 years, 48 years. Let me tell you, they've been through seasons where all the pretty blossoms had fallen from the branches. Put down your stupid books that talk about a soulmate and don't dare think, oh my goodness, they chose so well. They got it right, obviously. No, they had a root system that was growing underground towards each other even when the pretty blossoms had fallen from the branches. That's what God is calling us to. Yes, marriage. Yes, marriage. The Bible talks about it as oneness. But feelings alone will never get you there and will certainly not keep you there. It's an underground root system of something greater than feelings that will enable you to stay married for decades, that will enable you to stay in the same church for decades, that will enable you to maintain a friendship for decades. Root system, root system, root system. You say, okay, Brad, what is that? I propose to you that that root system is the gospel that is a fountain of mercy. It's the gospel. So that even when you hit those seasons where all the pretty blossoms have fallen from the branches of that relationship, there's something there that keeps it in place even when feelings are no longer alive. Let me show you the only way to keep this system of mercy alive. It's the gospel. Point number three, your mercy. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you joined us because this is a great day where I hope you're hearing what Christianity really is about. It's not we don't smoke or we, because some do. We don't go to movies. I do. We don't, we could go. It's not about what we don't do. There's certainly some things we don't do. 
But oh, hear me. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's the hub of it. It's Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. If you don't have that, you don't have what you need to maintain or sustain a lifelong relationship with anybody. My heart goes out to you. I can barely do it with this in place. Your mercy will dry up without a fresh, ongoing appreciation of God's mercy to you. Don't get over. Don't, you can't get over God's mercy to you. I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but it's one of the reasons that I keep reading through the Bible and I just thank God when I sit in the end of a gospel and I'm still moved by what he did for me. The day I can just read quickly through a gospel account of Jesus' death for me and no longer care and think, whatever, that was so long ago, what has God done for me lately? Oh, it's not a good day. It's not just that it's ungrateful. Listen to me. You will not be able to function in this world with other sinners. It is a fresh ongoing awareness and appreciation of God's mercy towards me that I never get over, that gives me everything I need. It doesn't always make it there, like Elise confessed, but I got everything I need to bend it out and extend it to others around me. In Matthew 18, Jesus drives this point home to us when he tells the parable about the servant who was forgiven... To put it in modern dollar terms, a 9.6 billion, I just used to be, dollar debt. And he ran out and found another human being who owed him $12,000. I think it's noteworthy. Sometimes people are guilty of saying, oh, we've been forgiven so much. And in the parable, the servant... It's just, it's a dollar. It's not a dollar. And Jesus knew what he was doing. It was three months wages that the man owed him. I don't know about you. I'm still not to the point in life that I could say, eh, between friends, don't worry about it. What is $12,000? Let's see if we can set up a payment plan. Can you give plasma? How much is your next child worth? I, I want it back. So he he puts it where it's large enough. What they have done does not compare to all God has forgiven you. But oh, it hurt. And it cost you. It cost you. It hurt. It cost you. Ooh. And the parable comes to a shocking climax in verse 31 when Jesus says, when the other servants saw What had happened, what this servant who had been forgiven went out and did, they were distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called that servant in and said, I want to help you. So look at me. If you're here and you do believe that God has forgiven you, how many of your sins? And you'll never have to pay. You'll never go to hell. You'll never experience the condemnation of God. You're 
You're sung over. You're delighted in. You're an adopted son or daughter. You have a robe of righteousness. You have direct access to the throne day and night. You have an inheritance. He sees you and treats you as if he would his son. If that's you and you say, that's me. And you're sitting here and you know through this whole message you've been thinking, there's someone, I'm not forgiving them. Not me, not me. Here's God's words to you. You wicked servant. That's what Jesus said. The master, the master's God, the father said, you wicked. This is not a little thing, folks. Oh, but I'm still serving in the children's ministry. It's almost like God would say, Oh my goodness, nothing else matters till this is made right. You wicked servant. I don't know what else the servant was doing right, right? Let's assume he had other things that he might have been doing right. It didn't matter. God categorically, without any hesitation, says, You wicked servant. Why? Because it blows God's mind. I canceled how much? Say it again. All that debt of yours. Because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Here's that phrase. Just as I had mercy on you. See, we tend to think, but they don't deserve it. They don't even seem sorry. They haven't asked forgiveness. It's not based on them. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I... It's a rhetorical question. Don't go home and ponder it. I don't know. Should I? It's rhetorical. There's a resounding, yes, you should. That's why you're wicked if you don't. See, what Jesus is teaching is God's mercy to us was never meant to stay with us, but should be passed on to others. Who else is going to operate this way in our world, folks? You think unbelievers are ever going to operate this way? No way. If we don't, who will? So how do you show mercy and forgive others in a way that aligns itself with what the Bible teaches. Maybe you're here and you're stuck. Like, I'm stuck. I don't know. I don't know how to move in that direction to forgive. I really don't, Brad. Let me give you three steps if you're stuck and not even sure how to move forward. Because I don't want you to just go home convicted. I would like you to take action and resolve this to the glory of God. Number one, look the hurt in the face. Forgiveness is not denying that it ever happened or pretending that it didn't hurt. Forgiveness has nothing to do with pretending and everything to do with remembering what really took place on the cross. And then in light of that, I look squarely in the face at the hurt. Let the facts stand. They hurt you. They hurt you. It was wrong. It's not pretending. Then step number two, put your hatred Away. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be put away from you. 
and be tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Here's a just as again. It's in Ephesians 4. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So you don't deny it. You look it squarely in the face. And it means you choose to send your emotions of hatred, which is natural, and bitterness and clamor, and you want to slander them and talk bad about them. You choose to send those emotions away and you, re- you say, now, wait a minute. How do I just send my emotions away? Stay with me. You refuse to indulge in the dark pleasure of nursing and rehearsing how they hurt you. Feelings are a result of thoughts. I know you can't just change a feeling. I'm not asking you to do that. You change what you keep thinking. And listen to me. In time, by the grace of God, not overnight, watch your feelings change. You choose and you refuse to keep indulging in the dark pleasure of rehearsing and nursing how they hurt. And you play it over... Here's what so often is happening. Let me, let me help you know how to change a feeling. You see, you're just talking about changing a feeling. You change a feeling when you change what you're thinking. Here's how we're wired. I don't have a Bible verse for this because TVs didn't exist. Inside of each one of us as human beings, sinful human beings, we have two HD large screen surround sound televisions that are playing in our minds so often. You say, what's on the big screens, Brad? Well, it's madness, but it's not March Madness college basketball. On one screen is the screen of self-pity, where you play back. Is it not true? You can see exactly where you were standing and what was that. Slow motion, what they said, what they did, where you were standing, or what they didn't do or didn't say. It's the slow motion replay And it's the self-pity screen. But there's a second screen. It gets worse. The second screen is revenge. Where it's a slow motion of ideas and fantasies of what you'd love to see happen to them. Because of what they've done to you. Self-pity. Revenge. And you unplug those Again, this, is, this won't be easy. Don't hear me saying, so do it right now. Just boop, good. We all good? Oh my goodness, you start to reach for those plugs and your flesh will say, no, 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 no. It's right for you to do this. No. Oh, it'll be hard. But listen to me. You can do this if you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit within you, when you start to reach, he's helping you. He wants you to reach. Remember, keep in step with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading towards those plugs and would love you to pull them. In fact, as you keep it going, you grieve Him. Because He's saying, I forgave you all that debt and you're going to live with these two screens going? No, no, no. But your feelings will never change until what you're thinking starts to change. And that bumps us right up against what's so hard about this again. Step number three, you pay the cost for their sin. 
If you hadn't figured it out yet. You, some of you are trying to figure out how to forgive and it shouldn't cost me. It shouldn't cost me. I'm not the one that did it. It shouldn't cost me. Forgiveness always entails a cost. The very act of forgiveness means you absorb the cost of what they did against you. But folks, stay with me. Because that's what God did for us. Did it cost the Heavenly Father to forgive us? We make a misstep sometimes when we hear, what's the free gift of eternal life? It's the free gift. And you, you make the mistake of thinking, so there was no cost. There's no cost. There's, there's no cost to you. But God the Father paid an ultimate horrific price. In fact, Isaiah the prophet, 600 years before the price was ever paid, caught God in the act of forgiving You want to know what it looks like? You want to hear the cost? Isaiah 53. Get that big screen HD surround sound TV going in your mind. And hear the only perfect one who ever lived crying out, my God, my God. Let it echo surround sound. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the wrath of God was poured out on the one who did not deserve it for you. A price was paid. He absorbed the cost so that he could forgive you. You absorb the cost. It'll cost you. But it'll never cost you more than it cost the Father to forgive you. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed. You hear a cost? For our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes. And don't just think, oh, I guess he had some marks. 39 Lashes with a cat of nine tails that in many cases killed the person before they even went to the cross. It wasn't just right on their shoulders. The intent of the one delivering this who was well skilled in it was to strip the skin from them from the ankles all the way to the back of the head all the way down with sharp metal, just ribbons of flesh. Often the internal organs were left exposed by his stripes. We are healed. You absorb the cost of that other person's sin because your Savior absorbed the cost for yours. Some of you keep thinking you need to surround yourself with better people. I got to find a better church because I just got hurt again. A different spouse, different friends. Might I propose to you What if you started pouring on mercy to the relationships you already have? Just as God has had mercy on you. Oh God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the only hope that we have. And and these are the kind of passages where we just, our knees buckle and we say, I can't, I can't, I can't. So God, we look to you. Just like we say we can't do enough to be forgiven and you forgave us. We say, God, we can't live this way. Oh God, help us. Supernaturally. 
to have a fresh awareness of the mercy you've extended to us and poured out on us that doesn't stop. It says, your word says your mercies are new every morning. We're still getting mercy. We're still getting mercy. We're still getting mercy. And oh God, unleash the floodgates that that mercy poured out on us would no longer stay with us, but would begin to bend out towards others around us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.